The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. My guest today is internationally known as an oceanographer, biogeochemist, paleoceanographer and science administrator. She has chaired many important organizations including the U.S. Global Change Research Program and vice-chaired the U.S. Climate Change Science Program as well, among many other areas in research and administrative positions. As founder of the Climate Response Fund, her work taken from an extensive background in all areas of environmental and climate study provides the foundation for deeper and more communicative solutions towards encouraging focus on the emerging and critical measures now required to slow down severe effects of the human impact on our world. Dr. Margaret Lennon joins us today from Virginia. Welcome to you. Hello, it's wonderful to be with you, David. Absolutely, likewise. It's a real pleasure. I'd like to begin this immediately by asking you to give our listeners a two or three minute summary of your background, uh, where you came from, and what uh, your current uh, remits are in your work. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, unlike many oceanographers, I didn't grow up next to the ocean and dream of being an oceanographer. Uh, I grew up in the Midwest in Illinois, far from the ocean, and never saw it until I was in my 20s. But I was very interested in geology and in the history of the Earth and the history of, um, especially of the the uh, the climate. And uh, as I got into college and started studying that, I realized what an important role the oceans played in all of this and decided to uh, focus on oceans. So I uh, went to the coast, I studied oceanography, and put that together with my interest in geology. So for most of my career, I've studied how the oceans interact uh, with the climate through history, uh, what has happened to them, what changes have taken place, and so forth. And that has turned out to be something that brought me to climate studies because our current very rapid changes in climate uh, really call on us to look back at the history of the planet and to understand what's happened in the past, uh, what we can learn from it, what lessons it gives to us for dealing with climate change, for understanding climate change, and so forth. So that's what led me from the Midwest to where I am now. You know, it was interesting, Margaret. I had the great pleasure of a program shared with our friend Dr. Jerry Schubel from the Aquarium of the Pacific in Long Beach recently. He obviously grew up on the, in the coastal areas over in your neck of the woods on the East Coast, and he was almost devastated at how he could compare the disintegration, I suppose you could put it, of the coastal areas there over when he was a child. Could you perhaps make a statement on that, on how you've seen those coastal areas change? Well, because I didn't grow up in the coast or on the coast, uh, I can't put it in that, that context, but I can put it in another context with for you uh, that fits in this climate world. Uh, when I was a little girl, I loved to garden, and I would go to the store and buy the seed package, and on the back of the package, it would tell you when you could plant the seed, you know, and, and uh, essentially when spring came. And... Uh, by the time that I was about 12 years old, the U.S. Department of Agriculture had for the first time published 
the hardiness zones, which are now used by gardeners all over the country, and they they map out um, the the uh, extent of different uh, regimes that are related primarily to temperature. And over the time that I have been gardening, the U.S. Department of Agriculture has had to change those four times. And the place that I grew up in Illinois is now two hardiness zones warmer than it was when I was a little girl. What is that in terms of temperature increase? It's really more related to when spring comes. So spring, as well as temperature, it's a combination of those. And essentially, spring is coming a couple weeks earlier, and the um, uh, the minimum temperatures during the winter are uh, about five degrees warmer than they were when I was a little girl. Back in those days, in younger days, we had the great American manufacturing base. We had the mighty industry, the three big car makers. We're seeing now, as we did in the UK, the really the last days of that manufacturing. Is that in any way going to have an effect or change the rapid, severe problems that we have with climate? Because it's, it's clear that that manufacturing and that pollution, the carbons that are created, the general pollution that's created, could be diminished in some way. Is there any premise, any thought that you have with that? Well, I think that if you look at manufacturing across the world, what you find is that... Um, you know, really factory-style manufacturing uh, has decreased in the U.S., but it has not decreased in other areas of the world. In fact, China, India, uh, many places in Latin America have increased their manufacturing at the same time that it's decreased in the U.S. And in fact, we see that, that playing out with the development of China, India, uh, Brazil, many other countries, uh, so that their demands for fossil fuel energy are increasing very rapidly. And that, of course, is one of the concerns in this whole area of climate and climate change. And, and uh, I, I think that the real key is not to look at that in terms of uh, China, India, Brazil, and other countries shouldn't be increasing their manufacturing base or that we shouldn't. But what can we do in terms of innovation to find uh, fuels and energy sources that do not uh, hold as much um, uh, that, do, that don't affect greenhouse gases, that don't put more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Likewise, is there anything that we can do about uh, the fossil fuel use that we have, uh, for example, carbon capture and storage, other techniques that prevent uh, greenhouse gases from going into the atmosphere? And before we look at those in detail, uh, for the sake of the listener, could you be kind enough to define your roles? At the beginning of the program, I stated you as being an oceanographer, a biogeochemist, a paleo-oceanographer, and a science administrator, just so the listener has an, an idea of those areas and uh, exactly establish in their minds what your mandate is. Sure. I spent many years as uh, a university researcher in oceanography, in climate, in biogeochemistry, the, the interaction of the oceans uh, with the carbon system and, uh, and biology. Uh, then in the 90s, I moved into uh, science administration. I served as the dean of the Graduate School of Oceanography at University of Rhode Island. Uh, I still did some research during that time, but I was a full-time administrator. In 2000, I came to Washington, D.C. to serve as the assistant director of the National Science Foundation for Geoscience, and that included the oceans, the atmosphere, earth science, and then I also had responsibility for climate and environment across the uh, entire foundation. The National Science Foundation is one of the principal sources of funding for university researchers in these areas across the country. 
in 2007, I left NSF uh, to go into the private sector uh, in a, a new area of interest and research that is called climate intervention or geoengineering. And it's the purposeful um, manipulation the environment in order to avoid the impacts of climate change. And this is not something that scientists are proposing that we do immediately. They're proposing that we study this, that we do research on it. So now I work with the community to identify all of the issues around that research uh, that need to be addressed before it can go forward. Um, Safety, governance, ethics, international law, public opinion, etc. What about the communication aspect of that? Is there not surely a time when scientists need to stop talking to scientists and research needs to be, you have to have a set of benchmarks, as it were, placed upon all these stages to the point where you then look at communication with actually talking to people around the world about what it is that's facing them. How do you get involved in that? What is the catalyst that sets up the segue towards taking the research as that you have today and moving into communication and making sure that people understand the severity of the situation? Oh, it's very important that scientists talk to um to others, and and whether that's the general public or whether it's the press or whether it's uh, policymakers, policy experts, all of those people. And it's a challenge for scientists because the culture of science and the way that science is conducted and the way that we talk to each other as scientists couches everything in a a lot of conditions. So we say, well, I've studied this, but I haven't studied that. And I've only studied this small piece of what, uh, of this area. And, uh, you know, I'm not 100% sure that this is the case. I'm only 95% sure. So we, we tend to uh, qualify everything. And in doing that, we often so overqualify it that we don't convey the real essence of what we have discovered and what we know to the public. So the, the first item that we have there is a difference in the culture of communication. The second is that I think, especially in this area of environment and climate, that scientists need to recognize that what we do is now extremely important to governments, to economies, and to the quality of life for people. There are trillion-dollar issues associated with climate, and we need to understand the, the grave responsibility that that places on us as scientists to communicate, uh, to communicate honestly and effectively, and to, uh, to also be able to put our work uh, in a larger context. And those are challenges that scientists in this field probably didn't have. 25 or 50 years ago, but they certainly have them now. How do you rate the success at the moment in that with scientists? Scientists are very analytical, are they not? And they, they're like engineers, they tend to be in a box. And it must be very difficult to incite them into being able to communicate with a wider public. Is there a mechanism that has to come in between the scientific community and the general public to be able to facilitate that? I don't think that it's so much a mechanism or, uh, or a, a filter. I think that it's more a question of helping scientists understand how to communicate effectively, how to be simple in their use of language, how to be able to help people understand what they're sure of and what they're not sure of. And I think that if they simplify and if they keep in mind that, uh, you know, that sense of surety and unsurety, uh, that, that uh, they're good communicators. 
Um, but it's really a question of helping them understand. Can we look at now the more definitive areas, carbon scrubbing, uh, methane removal, um, uh, halo carbon removal, geological storage in concrete, which actually has been getting some quite wide press recently, uh, deep ocean storage, it goes on. And they all have merits and they are all incredibly innovative in themselves. But essentially, are the general public ever going to get that? Do we not live in a world where people really will let things reach a point which is so desperate before they'll do absolutely anything at all? So is it not going to be difficult to take these categories and actually discuss these with the general public and ensure that they're getting it, as it were? I think that the the challenge isn't so much talking about these categories and the you know the different options as it is the challenge of talking about something that is a slowly evolving crisis so we as humans are wonderful at putting off action when we think we can get away with putting it off and we have lots of examples in human health whether it's um, you know eating uh, correctly, whether it's uh, losing weight, you know, stopping smoking, uh, all of these things that are related to long-term impacts uh, that are they're difficult for us to deal with. If, we, if we've injured ourselves or if we see an emergency right in front of us, we're really good at taking action. So I think the first um, challenge is communicating to people what we do know about the evolving climate change. And, and I, I think that some ex- just the example that I used about how much uh, agricultural conditions, growing conditions in my hometown have changed over my lifetime, that's something that people can really understand. And I think that if we communicate more clearly what's at stake and also what the consequences of not taking action will be uh, that we uh, that w- will will be more effective once people understand that there is a problem. Then I think they're very open to looking at the pros and cons of different solutions, and they're very willing to um, they're very willing to discuss risks, costs, effectiveness. Etc. And that's what's essential for looking at some of these different ideas that you talked about. I think you would probably agree that we are living in a society where people possibly are scared of looking at these scenarios because they know that those scenarios are going to change their lives dramatically. People, especially in the Western world in America, are used to a certain uh, standard of living. Materialism is prolific in our society today. Would you agree with me that possibly the idea of frugality is going to be the, the greatest premise moving forward? And if frugality is going to be, because we have no choice in, in changing the way that we live, that people as a whole are going to push back at anything that suggests that we have to do something about the climate at this stage? I think there are two aspects of that. One is economic and one is quality of life. So if you tell your neighbor, um, you know, bad things are going to happen and in order to prevent them from happening, you're going to, it's going to cost you a lot of money and By the way, in addition to that, uh, you know, your quality of life will not be what it was before. They're going to be very resistant. And I think that one of the the, um, difficulties in this whole climate change debate and climate and and the way that that uh, response to climate change has been laid out to, to people is that there's been I think there's been a lot of sort of strident insistence on, you know, almost a sense of moving backward. You know, we have to go back to the way things were in the past. And people look and they say, well, you know, I didn't have a computer and uh, I didn't have this, I didn't have that, and I don't want to go back to that, that stage. 
I think that we need to reframe this as how we're going to move forward in a different way. If you say you'll have enough energy to do the things that you want to do, but it's going to come from different sources. That uh, introduces um, a segue for me. In a recent program in my Letters from America, I talked about the competition for resources being connected with population patterns, overpopulated areas of the world, people's need since the beginning of time to migrate to a place that has a standard of living, has work and opportunities. In America, are we facing that problem? Now, clearly, in the whole world, we're at 6.5 billion population. We've added 2.5 billion probably since the mid-70s. But is that one of the bigger issues that in this climate debate that we have to look at now in this country? Because uh, climate is as much connected to resources uh, as anything else. So if we are losing these resources rapidly in the in this country which means we're not going to have the whereabouts to invest in science, invest in research. What is it that we have to do to protect those resources and perhaps look at the movements of people, the population debate? Where does that come into this? Well, let me, uh, let me deal with them separately and then try to connect them. Um, resources are an issue, but I think that what we need to do is focus on how we use resources effectively. For example, let's take water. Uh, We waste a tremendous amount of water uh, compared to uh, countries where uh, just because of their geography, uh, they have less water to use. Um, Finding ways of being able to save that resource by using um, technologies and, and, uh, and efforts that, that use less water to do the same thing is a great example of how you can preserve the resource but still not uh, negatively impact people's, people's lives. And I think that we need to look at each type of resource, whether it's water, whether it's uh, energy, whether it's uh, soil, uh, and so forth in that way. And those efficiencies are, are very much a part of, uh, they're very closely related to energy use because they demand energy for using, for extracting and using resources. And, the, and so there's a feedback loop there. That's the, the first thing. The second thing is population. And, uh, and yes, we, we know from demographic projections that we're going to be dealing with a planet with another two and a half billion people on it by mid-century. And there the big issue is how will all of those people be able to have uh, a reasonable lifestyle a reasonable standard of living with the resources that we have. And I think that more than anything, this demands innovation and development of alternative energy sources. And may I just come in there for one minute? We talk about innovation, we talk about technology. It's terribly expensive, is it not, talking about innovation? It's in today's economy innovation and technology is going to be extremely difficult to to manage if there is not an economy behind it to actually manage it. And I think that in respect of government and the way that industry thinks, it's expected that technology and innovation in these areas will actually increase employment. I'm not sure that it, it will. Uh, any response to that? Well, it does take uh, resources, money, um, economic uh, activity in order to innovate. But I don't think that we are at a place in the U.S. where we don't have money for innovation. We, we have a lot of resources that we point in the direction of innovation. China, Brazil, India, Europe all invest a great deal in innovation. 
And I think there, the, one of the keys is to put incentives out for innovation in the areas in which we have the biggest challenges, uh, energy, um, especially uh, renewable energy, uh, alternative kinds of, uh, of energy sources, uh, efficiency, and so forth. And uh, increased uh, energy use is not, I don't think, is as big a problem as the, the cost of, or the, the problem of shifting from where we are to that new development. Now, there isn't anything out there right now that is, uh, for example, a solar uh, technology that can be deployed uh, at, at a level that it would replace coal, for example, um, for a whole variety of reasons. But that doesn't mean that uh, the technological development can't work toward that and, and there are many, many aspects of that technology challenge. And the key is to really provide incentives for people to work on those technologies. What would, those, what would an example of those incentives be? Are we essentially looking now at the industrial leaders of the world to shift the emphasis away from profitability? to actually uh, focus on these issues? Uh, are they the ones who are going to have to accept at the end of the day now that stakeholders are going to have to take a back seat here right now uh, while these major industry leaders support the whole concept of proving this world and slowing down the degradation in the climate? Well, I think that it's critical for technology leaders and business leaders to support the need for innovation in energy technologies. I don't necessarily think that that means that that, um, businesses have to say that they're going to move to a low-profit situation. Uh, I think the the key, when I say incentives for technology development, um, there are there are a variety of, of options. I mean, we we've seen in the U.S. Um, uh, four or five major activities from the Department of Energy that are pointed at uh, technology innovation for energy. That's a great example. We've seen um, we have we have uh, incentives like. Um, uh, prizes. We have incentives like tax incentives for uh, for investment in research, uh, as long as it's in uh, a particular area. We have incentives that come uh, to engineers and scientists in universities. For example, uh, the availability of research funds to work in a particular area. If if we decide that. Though that we really want to innovate in this area, we need to put all of those potential tools uh, and incentives uh, out there and point them at, uh, at, at not, not the answer, because we don't know the answer, but at the problem that we want to solve. What do you think the merits are of a carbon tax to industry? Do you think a carbon tax is practical? Uh, is it an incentive? Could it possibly be a turn-off for industry in, in, in trying to support all these programs and innovative ideas that, you, that we're talking about here? Um, the, the two major ways, uh, the, the critical thing is to put a price on carbon, to make sure that um, at, at, by putting a price on carbon that there's an incentive to emit less carbon. There are two techniques for doing that that are debated, especially in this country. One is a carbon tax. The other is uh, a cap-and-trade system or a cap-and-dividend system. In a carbon tax, you know exactly what the price will be because you specify the price of carbon by putting the tax on it. In a cap-and-trade or cap-and-dividend uh, system, you cap 
the emissions. So you know how much carbon is going into the atmosphere, but the price floats or the, or the price and dividend floats uh, to the market. Uh, there are many in the, and, and there, are, there are economists who argue uh, about the advantages and disadvantages of taxes versus caps. Uh, I'm not an expert in that. I think that the most important thing is to put the price on carbon. And, uh, you know, I'm willing to let the policymakers, um, you know, fight it out about whether it should be a tax or whether it should be a cap uh, and, and to move forward based on their best advice and their best uh, um, sense of, of what's good for the country. But the critical thing is to get a price on carbon. Is it, I could be terribly cynical here, but it, I mean, is it not true in many industries? I mean, look, the Coyote Treaty that, that was really never, never successful is indicative of industries who will turn around and say, well, okay, well, go ahead, carbon tax away. We'll continue to produce our products and we'll take the hit and you can carry on with your research. So uh, while that happens, and whether that's cap-and-trade or, or carbon tax, you're still going to have rampant pollution while the scientific community is still in a catch-up mode trying to figure out how they're going to uh, arrest the further decline of the climate. The Kyoto Protocol, which was a mechanism, uh, an international mechanism, for trying to get uh, a way to decrease uh, carbon and the European trading system, which was a cap and trade system for carbon, uh, were largely ineffective because they they didn't put realistic caps on on carbon. So um, the, there were lots of ways out for uh, for industry, and in the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, there were many parts of the world that didn't have to participate, that didn't have to reduce emissions. So I would I would lay the the problem at the the lack of efficient uh, mechanisms or efficient incentives rather than the mechanism itself. Could it be that we'll result at the end of the day here with a regulatory mandated? government or body who's just going to turn around and say enough climate is 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 in uh, a disastrous situation we have no idea as to the urgency cut it off we're going to have to regulate absolutely everything down to the nth degree is that something that could happen here margaret in the near future the the only way that i see that happening is if we see something that most of the world perceives as a climate emergency. Now, there are many scientists who believe we're already in a climate emergency, but that's not, a, that's not an opinion that's shared by my neighbors or probably my global neighbors in other countries. However, uh, for example, if uh, a big piece of the West Antarctic ice sheet um, uh, moved off into the ocean and result, and so we knew that there was going to be uh, substantial sea level rise as a result of that. I think people would would see that as a climate emergency. In other words, it's going to take something terribly catalytic for anybody to do anything. No, you the the vision you presented was one where. Uh, everything was really clamped down and, and regulated to the nth degree. I think that it will take a climate emergency to do that in a hurry. But that doesn't mean that I don't see uh, the potential for progress and the potential for, uh, for dealing with us. I think that it's just it's an extremely difficult problem because uh, this is all wrapped up in uh, our desire to uh, to have stable economies and in the desire of the developing world to have a lifestyle that isn't identical to ours but that that allows the 
uh, you know, technological development and, uh, you know, basic um, basic food security and, and uh, water security and, uh, you know, a mod- modern lifestyle. And, and that is such a challenging problem. And I think that what's going to happen is that there will, people will work on this. They do know that it's an issue that they need to work on and that they will, um, they will start to decrease emissions. My fear is that it will not happen quickly enough. And that's, then you have, and what do I mean by it won't happen quickly enough, that, that we will, um, it, it won't happen quickly enough to prevent a lot of climate impacts and uh, changes in precipitation, um, warmer temperatures in some places, colder temperatures in other places, climate change. With all that said, can we talk about the techniques that are required to facilitate a communication between experts like yourselves and the general public, and in particular youngsters, the younger generations, if we are going to avoid the serious consequences that you you have just talked about, what is it that we have to instill into people that if they don't take action now, something really devastating will occur? Well, I think that the first thing is that we have to be very clear about what we know will occur so that we're not talking about, well, maybe this will happen or maybe that will happen. There are, there are many things that, that all of the models agree on. And, for example, changes in precipitation in the U.S., uh, drying in the, uh, in the southwest, um, earlier uh, onset of spring, less storage of snow in snowpack in the mountains and, and its availability as water resource. So I think we need to lay those things out very clearly. The second thing is that I think that we need to talk with the younger generation about uh, the, the things that they can do that uh, lead to more efficient use of resources, um, whether that's saving energy by turning off lights, whether it's, um, whether it's you know, saving water. Uh, and it's not so much that just turning off lights is going to solve the problem, but I think that it's a different mindset. When you train people to, uh, to understand that they can make a difference by their own actions and by what they talk about and what they, um, how they look at things, they'll grow up that way. Uh, when, when people wanted to start recycling in the U.S., they started talking to children and in, uh, talking to them in school about recycling. And pretty soon you had children uh, saying to their parents, uh, don't throw away that can or don't throw away that bottle, recycle it. And I think that young people can make a big difference there and, and that by talking to them about the world that they will have to grow up in and what they can do to make a difference, um, that it will change the way that people think about this. I think that young children have to be led by example. And they have to be led by either a government or local civic authorities or people, celebrities, perhaps. Um, I would at this stage possibly question the, the last of those categories as being viable force. But we don't really seem to have at the moment a strength of leadership in this country to to allow that to happen. Perhaps we need to discuss that with the government more to make sure that they are holding up their end of the bargain and taking responsibility and, and accountability for these issues and in, in moving ahead, incentivizing uh, children today. Uh, I agree with you, and I think there are two important sources of leadership. One, as you correctly pointed out, is, is government leadership. And there I think the real key is to get rid of this... Um, confusion uh, in the minds of government about whether climate change is happening or whether it isn't. 
and I think that that is the responsibility of the scientific community. They need to they need to communicate more effectively and more clearly about what we know and and be very convincing with that. I think a second big source of leadership is in the private sector. Uh, whether it's small businesses or big businesses, they all understand uh, what it means to their bottom line to conserve resources and to use energy more efficiently. And the the whole issue of climate change has come into the boardroom. And again, it doesn't matter whether the whether it's a you know multinational company or whether it's a, a small company in your neighborhood. They're all thinking about the cost of energy, the the cost of resources, and I think that they need to convey. They need to to assume leadership for that and convey to schools and to the the curriculum the importance of doing that. Right now, we clearly have a very poor economy. Um, we have a very high level of unemployment. Uh, we we do have a depleting manufacturing base uh, with which we can replace a lot of that employment, and 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 it's clear in this country as as it is globally that that there is a very bad uh, mindset with with people in many areas. Now, some may say to you, this has great premise, it's terribly important, um, but given the, the state of the economy at the moment and the, the mounting debt, etc., we, uh, we may have to bank this idea right now and, and concentrate on that. What would be your response to that? I, uh, I understand the, the challenge that the economy is in. Uh, I still think that there are many actions that we can take that save resources and therefore those savings drop to the bottom line of companies to allow them to hire more people to invest in uh, in growth and when we link the savings to the, the growth both in jobs and in in the, the company itself I think that there, that's a very positive message. And I think that's the place where even in this economy we can um, allow this, uh, this issue to continue um, while, people, while the economy gets back on its feet and, and starts growing again. In, in your work... It, it must be uh, very essential to understand the, the human position, the, the human dynamic, the way that humans uh, think individually and uh, in community and corporately. There's going to be a lot of work here, I would propose, in the corporate system as much as in government to realign uh, the people at the top in the in the in the boardrooms, with uh, the employees underneath them and the con- consumers underneath them, in order to create a, a real collaborative approach here across the board. Um, is there anything that people like yourselves in in your community are working on to try and reinforce that now, uh, to ensure that there there is more of a uh, a real urgency where where top to bottom in in any area of society we do have to become much more uh, cohesive uh, and collaborative uh, I think in my own community it plays out in several ways it plays out in the the efforts of the the city council and in the efforts of uh, the community to build stronger community to forge the links between people and um, we have had several big challenges. Um, one, one of them was five feet of snow uh, this past winter, which was un, unheard of in, in Alexandria, Virginia. And people really tried to capitalize on the sense of uh, neighborhood, uh, neighbors helping neighbors, and out of that, that was just one example, but they've been trying to grow a sense of neighborhood. And if you do that, then you have the tools to be able to reach out to people. I think the, the issue of saving and, um, you know, efficiency and so forth has also been 
very much on on the mind of not only my city council but but those around the country and uh, the degree to which they can reduce costs by uh, efficiencies like that as opposed to efficiencies by cutting positions and and therefore putting more workload on other people uh, it, you know it's it's preferable to um, to find efficiencies that don't influence the number of people that are, are hired. Uh, I'm not, I'm not uh, trying to say that this is easy. I'm not trying to say that, that we can avoid, um, you know, we can solve the, the economic problems in this way. I'm just saying that this is an opportunity. It's a teaching moment. It's an opportunity for action because those kinds of efficiencies are ones that, that uh, don't cost jobs. Now we're coming towards the end of the program. Um, I think what we're defining here is not um, communicating any song, any sense of panic, as it were. Um, it would be madness at this stage to start beating people up or th- making threats or, or suggesting over and over that uh, the, the planet is going to uh, implode unless we do something. I, I think that people will probably disregard that even more and just carry on with their daily lives uh, and, uh, and, and until something happens. But are, are there people who can come in on this at very high levels and change that paradigm, change that mindset? Um, uh, and and not only uh, in, in higher level government positions or industry, but in the communities that you're talking about, and that's what interests me is that you're talking about local level people, neighbourhoods. Is that where this will all start? Uh, do you believe? I think uh, it it could be a uh, maybe a premise that people will start looking this more on a local scale than they would on a global scale now. I think that the key to engaging people is at the local level. It's certainly, you know, national figures and national leadership are critical, but the place where people take action is in their neighborhood. That doesn't mean we can solve the whole problem by renewables and efficiency. There's a lot more to it than that. There's a lot that has to be done in new processes and uh, international action as well. But when you have success at the local level with your neighbors, your city, your, your neighbors, your friends, your city, I think it gives you confidence to push at a national level as well. And I think that that's a really important way that we can strengthen um, the confidence of people in the fact that we can uh, move forward, we can do this, we can demand of our leadership that they take action at levels that only they can. Is this also possibly defining a radically changing world now where we are going to see people become more local in their outlook? in business, in social terms, where the old premise of global trade may diminish uh, because uh, surely it is global trade that is creating so much of the, the pollution that we're seeing today. Um, could, could, could there be um, some truth in that? I don't think that the movement for local will supplant globalization. Uh, there's just the the technological revolution has allowed that globalization and we're very dependent on it uh, in terms of being able to to access the resources the human resources the climate resources if you will uh, agricultural resources uh, around the globe but i think that there whenever you have a, a huge um, uh, challenge like this, it reinvigorates local action. It makes people turn to those around them uh, for support, for um, for mutual activity. And I think that, that that is a good thing, 
um, you know, understanding our our local environment, understanding our local resources, understanding what's next to us, um, build strong community, and I think strong communities build stronger uh, a stronger world, whether it's in the United States or, or elsewhere. Uh, community is a very powerful thing, and it it not only makes uh, the individual more effective, it, it extends their their power, but it also feels good. It makes us uh, it makes us enjoy our lives more because um, it, it's so proximal to us. It's right right next door. And I think that's a that's a to be reminded of that what community means. I think is is a really strong and powerful thing. Uh, that is coming out of this this great crisis, this economic crisis. Looking back in history, over the last uh, 60 years, of course, you can see that the greatest times of uh, people's collaboration uh, and cohesiveness uh, are the world wars, uh, particularly the Second World War. Um, maybe we're looking at a period here where, for the first time, we're looking at people coming together in force, um, yes, over the uh, economic conditions, uh, yes, perhaps uh, over political conditions, but moreover, this could be a rebirth that is defined by people coming together in, in, in all of the aforementioned areas that you were talking about there because of climate, because that they can actually see in front of their eyes now temperatures changing, crops um, failing, uh, their ways of life failing, and and perhaps uh, that could be a, a blessing in disguise. I think that if, if climate change did result in those positive actions, that that would be a wonderful thing. Uh, I, I, I grew up with the parents who had gone through the Great Depression in the U.S., and I would, I would use that as another example. My parents' stories about... Um, how people helped each other and what happened during the depression uh, were very moving to me and they and they clearly were very moving to my parents and i think that that may be maybe even a better example than a war of how people um, got together to improve conditions for themselves and for their communities in response to a huge challenge, and hopefully, uh, climate would be a challenge and a, uh, an opportunity more like that than like a war. Would your own personal vision uh, anticipate us going back towards the old ways? Um, I'm not talking about uh, 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 prior uh, to the Industrial Revolution or the 1700s, but possibly going back to old ways of farming, uh, apprenticeships, um, more uh, manual, skilled trades. Uh, could that possibly be what occurs here? I really don't know enough about agriculture to uh, to talk about whether whether that is something that would be good and whether it would um, whether it would have the result that you're talking about. But I do think that um, a closer uh, understanding of uh, a better understanding of what is grown around you, a better appreciation for that, sort of the the local food movement and the local agriculture movement. Uh, is uh, an important trend and one that, at least in my community, I see people uh, moving towards saying, you know, where, where did this vegetable come from or where did this, uh, where did this meat come from? Uh, sort of a sense of uh, trust in, in what's close to them. And I'm not saying that they should distrust things from far away, um, but, uh, you know, it's all part of that sort of growth of community. And I think that, um, I think that, that we need to be, uh, we need to appreciate the, the value that we're talking about and not uh, sort of jump to 
well, the technology that was used to create that sense of community um, 75 years ago was this, and so we need to go back to that technology. I think that we need to look at how, what, what are the tools that we have to create the sense of community that we want to create the, um, the improvement in use of, of resources, the improvement in, um, in uh, preserving soils, um, in preserving water quality, and then look at what tools we have that, that help us do that, rather than jump directly from, you know, we'd like to have a better sense of community, so let's go back to technologies of 75 years ago. Yeah, and uh, we, if we look back to the Founding Fathers, of course, uh, and we look at this as a republic and then a, um, a democracy, then, of course, we, we, people are incentivized uh, by using their tools, which makes them on their own a capitalist, to be able to uh, pursue the American dream and be able to be independent and driven and, and have the lifestyle that they want. So I'm guessing that there is a, a psychology here or a message that's saying particularly to our younger generation that if you use your your, your tools correctly that um, although climate change uh, and what we have to do to assure that may seem to be intangible, it, it is actually a tangible premise that it will allow you to have your freedom and to allow you to be able to be your own individual with independence. Uh, I would agree with that. Another really important trend that you and I haven't talked about in this conversation yet is social networking. For the younger generation, their community is certainly their local community, but their community is also an international community of people who share some interest with them. So they may find that their that a piece of their community is in another country, or a piece of their community is in another part of this country, and that as a result of these, these amazing tools for creating community, that that sense of closeness can really, um, you know, even more strongly go beyond the bounds of your local geographic community. Um, the sense of, of um, you know, what my life is like as uh, a child in, um, in Thailand uh, as compared to what my life is like as a child in Texas, um, may, may forge uh, strengths and community uh, values across the boundaries of countries. And I think that that's also a trend that we have to um, understand and we have to encourage the, the best possible use of that uh, amongst children as well. And I think that can also be a powerful, powerful tool to, uh, to get broader action. And in the last uh, 30 seconds of the program, uh, your, possibly your message to the, to the youngsters here as to what they can do with those, those tools and, and that amazing capability, that uh, opportunity that we never had when we were young. I think that that I would emphasize the need to um, to use this as a tool to understand to to understand what it's like to be in another place to understand what life is like for your friends around the world so that you can be a better citizen of the world not just a uh, sort of a, an observer from thousands of miles or hundreds of miles. Um, create, extend your sense of community from your family and your neighborhood to the world. Dr. Margaret Lenin of the Climate Response Fund, I thank you so much for joining me today. I am so uh, grateful and I hope this has been um, as useful uh, to you as it has for me. 
It was a wonderful conversation, David. Um, you gave me the opportunity to talk about some things that I have thought about, but never really uh, had a chance to discuss as a scientist. Thank and, you so much. Then we must do it again. Uh, thank you. And to our listeners, I hope you too have enjoyed this program as much as uh, we have today. You can get information on this and any other program in the series at davidgivens.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. Music